0: Morning everyone, Uh, getting a gold watch when you retire it's sort of an old fashioned idea you know it's something from like the corporate culture of the 1950s where you might work for the same company your entire life and then on your way out the door you get your gold watch right well I received this gold watch at the other end of my career at the beginning it was a gift from one of my aunts the day that I was ordained was completely unexpected but my aunt was known for giving lavish gifts to her extended family that is until it was discovered that she had been embezzling money from the law firm where she worked in order to pay for those (laughs) gifts but that's a different story and I kept the watch so because inscribed inside is my name and the date July 20th 1979 that's when I was ordained to the Ministry of the Word and Sacrament which is how it was described back then and I've always liked that phrase especially the first part, being ordained to the ministry of the Word. For, for me, that means both the living Word, Jesus, and the written Word, Scripture. The living Word. That's how Jesus is described in the very first verse of the Gospel of John. I hope you know it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. And through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing that has been made has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all humanity. And then dropping down a little later in the passage, And the Word became a human being and made his home among us. So I was ordained to the ministry of the living Word, Jesus, but also the written Word, Scripture. The purpose of the written Word, the Bible, is simply to point people to the living Word, Jesus. That's what Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39. He said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. The scriptures testify, they give evidence to, they tell the story of Jesus. The written word always points to the living word. And all I have ever wanted to do is to help people fall in love with the living word, Jesus, through a better experience of the written word the scriptures. To love Jesus through scripture. That's all I've ever wanted to do. To help people fall deeper in love with Jesus because, if I can misquote uh, Jim Rayburn, that's not what it's all about. That's all that it's all about. Putting people together with Jesus through a richer understanding experience of God's word. Now, I believe as Christ followers, we ought to be involved up to our eyebrows in the great issues of our time, combating racism, confronting this growing destruction of gender and our God-given sexuality, counteracting the rising violence against uh, the Asian community. I mean, the list of our society's ills could just go on and on. And those are all important, but not for one minute will I ever believe that we ought to be involved in anything that's ever going to take us away from pointing people to Jesus. That's our primary task, and it's also our biggest challenge because our generation needs him now more than ever. And so for me personally and as a church, we have to be clear about our main purpose. Addressing societal needs is an important subset of being a disciple of Jesus because Jesus loves and cares for the created world and all the people around us, but we've got to keep the main thing the main thing, that everyone has a right to know Jesus Christ. To know the facts about him, which are so often distorted today. To know that he lived the greatest life that was ever lived, and he died the most important death that was ever died. For people to know that as they look at Jesus, that this is what God is like. This is God in the flesh, God with skin on. Born in Bethlehem, grew up as a carpenter. Walked the dusty roads of a country we now call Israel. But he was God, he was all of God, creator, sustainer of the universe, jam-packed, just kind of squeezed down into a human being. And he had to come that way, because if he'd come any other way, he would have just scared the spit right out of us, right? We just wouldn't have understood him, we would have run away from him. But people didn't run from Jesus, they ran towards him. They only ran when they ran to tell others of the great love that they had experienced in him, and they would say, come, and taste and see for yourself so everyone has a right to know how they can relate to jesus personally but they also have a right to make their own choice about him and if you got in here accidentally this morning without realizing that this is what this whole thing is all about in here i hope you really get squared away with jesus for yourself today i believe back in 1979 that the greatest job in the world would be to be able to thumb through the pages of the old and new testaments in the presence of a group of people who would listen, who would listen because they knew you cared about them. And through those scriptures, offer them a pathway either to an initial experience of Jesus Christ, or if they already knew Christ, to draw them into a deeper experience with him. Because that's the only spiritual vaccine that will fix the virus of sin that has infected our world, that infects each and every one of us. The gospel of Jesus is the only effective vaccine against the virus of brokenness and separation and lostness and sin that exists between us and God and us and other people. It's not just enough, though, to have a vaccine. You can have a warehouse full of vaccines, but it doesn't do anybody any good until you have a delivery mechanism. The way to get the vaccine to the people, there has to be a structure. There has to be an organization. There has to be the church. The church is God's chosen delivery system for the gospel vaccine, a community of people all committed to the same thing. In 1979, I never thought about being an organizational leader, never looked down the road to consider all that would be involved in helping people to know the living word through the written word. I never, I never intended on going to 42 years of session meetings presbytery meetings, synod meetings, committee meetings, team meetings, strategy and vision meetings, and meetings about other meetings. That is not really what I signed up for, but maintaining a healthy delivery system for the gospel is actually one of the most important things we can do. Because a healthy organization is absolutely necessary in order to do the real work, which is putting people together with Jesus. So I've got three more weeks left to do that to try and draw people into a closer experience of Christ through a deeper experience of God's word. And I've been thinking and praying about how to do that over the next three weeks, and part of me just wanted to kind of back up the spiritual dump truck and just kind of, you know, hour, hour and a half, two hour sermons, that would be okay, right? Because I got a lot to say. (laughs) And then I realized that that's just too much, and what I really needed to do was to simplify as much as possible, just boil it down, to the basics, and so that's what I'm going to try to do over the next three weeks. And I want to start the way Jesus did the same thing. He made it simple. When he was asked, you know, what is this faith thing all about, Matthew 22:34. 34, he said, one of the Pharisees, an expert in the religious law, tried to trap Jesus with this question. Teacher, what's the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied that you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, That's the first and greatest commandment, but a second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law, the entire law and the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So it's simple, love God and love others. And in Jesus' mind, these are not two things, they're one thing. Love God and love others, two sides of the same coin, fused together in Jesus' mind. Now, Back in 2003 when we dedicated this wing of the church, I used an illustration from the writings of a guy named Leonard Sweet where he talks about a child on a swing set. Think back to when you were a kid, you know, and you're first learning how to swing on a swing set. Uh, Remember what it was like when you were there. To get the swing moving, you have to do two opposite things at the same time. You have to lean forward and kick back, and then you've got to lean back and kick forward. You've got to do both of those things. You can't do one without the other, or the swing won't move. You have to do both at the same same time. Lean forward and kick back. Lean back and kick forward. In physics, this is called parabolic harmonious oscillation. Okay, took me a long time to get that phrase down. Parabolic harmonious oscillation. Two opposite things working together. Two opposite motions that then move you higher and higher as you swing. Well Jesus taught us a version of this, uh, kind of a spiritual version of this parabolic harmonious oscillation. Love God and love others. You cannot separate them. And that's the key to the spiritual life. So what does it mean to fall in love with Jesus? Often we hear so much about From Christians about how much Jesus loves us and that's great unconditionally holy eternally all of that is true that's one of the great promises of his grace but how often do you really hear Christians these days talk about how much they love Jesus people want to receive Jesus's love but do they really love him in in return I mean how much do you really love Jesus what does it take to fall in love with Jesus? How does that actually happen? I remember very clearly the first time Donna and I met. It was our freshman year in college. I went to Hanover College in Indiana. It sits on a bluff overlooking the Ohio River, and there's a beautiful spot where you can look down and, and look down on the river. It's called The Point. And I was walking there with a friend, a young woman who was a junior. I was a freshman. We happened to come across Donna, who was sitting under a tree studying, Supposedly. I don't know to this day if my friend was trying to be a matchmaker and had set the whole thing up ahead of time, but she introduced Donna and I. And I was wearing a jacket with the uh, Young Life logo on it. It's a ministry of high, for high school kids that I was involved with uh, when I was in high school. And Donna was wearing a Young Life t-shirt. So it was like bingo, you know. We had this instant connection. But it wasn't love. It wasn't love at first sight. There was attraction but not love. Love has to be more than just a common interest. It's something deeper that has to develop as you get to know the person, as you get to see their heart, as you get to see their mind, as you feel drawn to their soul. Donna and I didn't start dating until months later, so love didn't happen right away, but it grew. It grew over time as we were drawn to know each other as a person. The scriptures help us to fall in love with Jesus because it shows us who he really is. By revealing his character, displaying his true heart and mind and soul, that's why people are drawn to him. Now listen to the story from Mark chapter 21, or Mark chapter 5 verse 21. Listen to how it describes what Jesus is like. And then tell me if it doesn't make you want to love him more. Jesus had been on the western side of the Sea of Galilee and People there had totally rejected him, and they couldn't wait for him to get on the first boat out of town. And so now he's come all the way across to the other side of the lake, and the story continues. Mark 5, starting with verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And he pleaded with him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her. So that she will be healed and live. And so Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she just grew worse. And when he heard, she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I could just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out of him and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched me? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it and then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. Trembling and with fear, told him the truth and he said to her, daughter, your faith Has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? And overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, "Don't be afraid. Just believe." Did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader. Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. And they went in where the child was looking. or He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around she was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is a story of a lot of contrast. Right away in this passage it contrasts with the previous place where Jesus was completely rejected. Here Mark describes this chaotic mob of people who are all pressing up against Jesus, flocking to see him. It's literally like the paparazzi trying to get Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. I mean, this is Jesus at one of the most popular points in the Gospels. But the focus on this passage is really on these two people who come close to him. The first character is Jairus, the synagogue leader, respected, trusted in his community. He was the one who who would lead the prayers or read the Torah at the synagogue each week. He handled the collections of money and the distribution of money to the poor. And so seeking out help from Jesus was not what a synagogue leader was supposed to do. At this point, the religious establishment had put the word out. They canceled Jesus. Uh, Jesus had offended him too many times. He was no longer allowed to speak in any of the synagogues. That's why Jesus was now preaching in the outdoors. He'd been banished. And so think of the social pressure, the prejudice that this man had to overcome in order to approach Jesus. I mean, he risked ridicule, risked being ostracized by his peers, risked his position in the community, risked it all because he was desperate. His daughter's life was on the line. His daughter, who had filled his life with such joy and sunshine for 12 years, he couldn't bear the thought of losing her. There was nothing he wouldn't do to save her. And if that meant going to this wandering rabbi and cutting his his ties to the power brokers around, he would risk it. He would risk it. Please come, Jairus says. Put your hands on her and I know she'll live. And I'm not sure how much Jairus really believed what he was saying, but like a drowning man, he was willing to grab onto anything. And so he grabbed onto Jesus and Jesus went with him. But the story gets interrupted before they go very far. This unnamed woman appears. She's the opposite of Jairus in every way. She's, first of all, a woman, and a woman with no standing in the community, an outcast who's been suffering a long time. Twelve years, she's had this uncontrollable bleeding. She's been suffering as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. Notice that contrast. Think of that. All this time, she's been considered an outcast, Almost on the same level as a leper because in the ancient Jewish world, they had all these strict laws about various kinds of disease and loss of blood made a person unclean. That just wasn't a physical description. That meant you were ceremonially unclean. In other words, you were actually unclean before God. You were dirty before God. Your disease shamed you. Your disease defined you. It meant that there was something wrong with you. It wasn't just that you were sick. There was something wrong with you. You were unclean before God, and anybody who came into any kind of contact with you would also be contaminated by your disease. So this woman, the disease had wrecked her physically, had wrecked her financially. She'd gone to every doctor, faith, healer, quack that you could find. They all took her money, no help. She was bankrupt. It wrecked her socially. Her family members couldn't be around her because of her disease. She was no longer welcome in the synagogue, the temple, and it wrecked her internally. You know, if you've been told for a long time that you're unclean and kind of worthless, you've been treated like you're unclean and worthless, you start believing you are unclean and worthless. You start believing all the negative things people have said about you. And so in her own eyes, she thinks herself that she's unclean that God didn't care about her, that she'd done something wrong and this disease was you know, God's punishment, some divine retribution. And when a person is rejected by others for so long, they can't help but slip into a world of self-loathing. But for all the ways she was opposite of Jairus, she had a few things in common with them. She was desperate. And so she was willing now to take this risk. And she was at the end of a rope. All her resources were gone. And so she went to Jesus, but the risk was great because you have to understand, she had to go through the streets incognito, hide her face, make sure no one recognized her because she was literally considered an outlaw for mingling with this big crowd. By going into the crowd, she contaminated everybody that ever bumped into her. And if they had found out about it, they actually could have stoned her to death legally. They had the right to do that. That mob street justice could have kicked in if her true self was revealed. That's what makes this moment so dramatic, this frail, bent over, weak, inconspicuous, this risky move that she makes. It gives her the courage to slip up behind Jesus and just kind of tuck a hand in through the crowd. To slip out a feeble hand and thinking, I'm an outcast, I don't deserve anything, maybe one finger. If I can just get one finger on him, that'll do the trick. And like that, uh, like the bolt from a from a taser, it shoots through her body, and she feels the healing power of Jesus, just kind of zap her. It stops her dead in her tracks. She's frozen in a moment of time. But she knew she had been healed. She was healed by this overflow, love of Jesus. His purity made her pure. His wholeness made her whole she tapped into this undeserved grace of God that flowed from Jesus unintentionally into her. And Jesus then comes up with one of the great lines of the Bible, who touched me? And his disciples are going, Jesus, everybody is touching you, every single, how can you say who touched me? But Jesus knew something had happened. It says that he felt power go out from him. Someone connected, him, connected with him in a way that was unique. And so now she drops on her knees before Jesus. The text says she drops in fear, maybe not knowing what was going to happen next. Maybe Jesus was going to throw her to the mob. Maybe her brazen act would be be criticized. Maybe the street justice would kick in. But here she experiences a third thing that she has in common with Jairus. She's desperate. She has a risky faith. But she's rewarded with this very tender word. It reveals the very heart of Jesus, the way he responds to all people in need. Jesus says to her, my daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This is actually one of the most beautiful moments in the Bible. One of the most beautiful in scriptures. Don't rush past it. This is the only time in scripture that Jesus ever uses the word daughter. Think about that for a moment. What it meant for this woman, this outcast, desperate, And Jesus uses the most intimate of family words. Think of the contrast. The same care that Jairus has for his daughter, Jesus has for this unnamed woman. She is God's daughter. Not rejected, but embraced. Not shamed, but loved. Not punished, but healed. Jesus didn't just heal her on the inside. He wiped away her shame and her self-hatred. He freed her emotionally and spiritually. He gave her True peace, shalom, he made her whole. Could that be what Jesus wants to do in you? The drama gets ramped up one more time. Some people arrive, they tell Jairus, too late, daughter's dead, don't bother the teacher anymore. I mean, really good friends he's got here, all right? I mean, they could have used some training from the deacons, I think. <laughs> I just have to imagine that Jairus is just stunned in shock. With, at that kind of news, you know, the mind just actually just shuts down. There was nothing more Jerish could do. He would already, already was at the end of the rope, and now his rope unraveled completely. Those final awful words had been spoken to him. His worst nightmare had come true, the implication being that Jesus shouldn't have stopped for the woman. Maybe if he'd kept going, he would have arrived in time, but Jesus ignores him. I can see Jesus kind of taking Jairus by the elbow and just leaning in close and saying, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. It's the only answer when fear rushes in, the presence of Jesus, that gentle, calm, but strong voice, don't be afraid. And as they approach the home, they're surrounded by these professional mourners like crows on a fence. It was customary in those days, and it's still the case in some parts of the world, in India and Asia and other places, the Middle East, For professional mourners to be on hand when the angel of death is hovering over someone's house. We talk about ambulance chasers today. Well, that's what these professional mourners were like, waiting in the wings for someone to die so that they could offer their services for a fee. The custom was you showed how much you loved the deceased by how big a fuss you made when they died. The more mourners you hired, the more you truly honored the dearly departed. It's sort of like funeral directors talking people into the velvet, gold lined, you know, plated coffins as though that's the best way to honor your loved one. It's just a box, it goes in the ground, it doesn't need to be fancy. So these mourners are just wailing away like crazy, and that's why they could switch so quickly to laughter when Jesus said the girl wasn't dead. They had no emotional investment in her well being, only a financial one. Jesus sends them packing. And then in the privacy of the room where the girl was lying with only the father, the grief stricken mother, the family, a few disciples, Jesus again displays this, this, this intimate, this wonderful personal tenderness. Protecting the girl from all the embarrassment, the unwanted attention of being healed in front of a crowd, Jesus takes her small hand in his and says, Talitha, cool, little girl, get up. It is one of the very few times in the Gospels where the very words of Jesus spoken in Aramaic, which was the Hebrew of Jesus' day, where the very words of Jesus spoken in Aramaic are preserved for us. Not translated into the Greek, but the very words Jesus spoke. The only other place in the Gospels where the Aramaic is used is when it records Jesus' words from the cross. And here he says, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. And instantly the power of life flows from Jesus into the girl, the author of life. He brings that spark of life back to her body and he, she sits up. She walks around the room. What a beautiful jaw-dropping moment. But did you know that if you have placed your trust in Jesus, you will hear Jesus say those exact same words to you that he said to the little girl? When you pass from this life to the next, you will hear the resurrection command of Jesus. I say to you, arise. I say to you, get up. And you will get up from death and enter into the promise of eternal life with him. So this is powerful stuff. And in almost a comical footnote, Mark records that Jesus tells him, give her something to eat. Whatever her illness had been, her body was depleted and she needed that common sense bowl of chicken soup. Now put yourself into the group of the disciples who were watching Jesus throughout this long story who watched him as he stopped and tenderly turned to the desperate woman, called her his daughter, enfolded her with grace and dignity, who watched as he walked side by side with Jairus in his overwhelming grief, who had to almost hold him up, who watched as gently Jesus brought this vulnerable girl back to life. And aren't you just drawn to him? Isn't Jesus just like a magnet that draws you to himself when you see him for who he really is? When you see how he treats people and relates to people and cares for people, and isn't that the God you need? Isn't that the God you want? Because some days you're the desperate woman and some days you're the anguished father and some days you're the helpless child. When we see Jesus for who he is, you fall under the spell of his love and you want to love him more. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I pray that between the lines of this message, You hear the loving voice of the Master just kind of calling you into his presence. Let the overflow of his mercy and grace and power flow into your soul. Let him touch you. Let his presence be a magnet that just draws you deeper in to love him more each and every day. Let's pray. Lord, help us to love you with all our heart, all our minds all our soul, and all our strength. Amen.